0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 23rd edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols an attorney with the floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. In a landmark National Labor Relations Board decision, the Board broadly expanded the monetary award that may be given to a prevailing worker in an unfair labor practices dispute. Prior to this new Thrive Incorporated and International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 1269 December 2022 decision, monetary damages payable to the worker who had a favorable ruling had been limited to back pay only. This limit has been expanded by this new NLRB decision to award And included make whole relief in addition to back play. Examples of additional forms of monetary relief may include consequential damages such as increases in insurance premiums, expenses incurred with connection with a search for another work, credit card debt interest and late fees on credit card debt penalties suffered by employees who are forced to make early withdrawals from retirement accounts, and increased transportation or childcare costs. In this new case, the California employer Thrive Incorporated operates a marketing agency engaged in the business of selling yellow pages advertising as well as software for small businesses. The union represents a unit of employees that includes the Thrive Outside Sales Force that goes to customer premises to solicit advertising sales. Around mid-July of 2019, Thrive began implementing its proposal to lay off all of its new business advisors in the Northern California region. The assistant vice president of labor relations emailed the union and notified them about the proposed layoffs and gave an invitation to exercise its right to meet and discuss the company's plan within a 30-day time period. The union and Thrive, uh, Thrive met several times to discuss the layoff of the new business advisors but failed to arrive at an agreement. So Thrive then unilaterally implemented its layoff decision just nine days after the first bargaining session. In proceedings filed against the employer, the trial judge did not find this to be unlawful, but the NLRB reversed and found an unfair labor practice. When Thrive unilaterally laid off six new business advisors, without responding to the union request for additional documentation it needed to evaluate the offers made by Thrive. After finding a violation, the NLRB next turned to the issue of the proper remedy, and it went on to say that it is necessary for the board to revisit and clarify its existing practice of ordering relief that ensures affected employees are made whole. For the consequences of a respondent's unlawful conduct. The board had previously issued a public notice and invitation to file briefs which sought amicus briefing on whether the board should include as part of its make whole remedy relief for consequential damages. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce in its amicus brief pointed out that the law identifies back pay as the only monetary relief that the Board can award to employees who suffer harm from an unlawful or unfair labor practice, quoting language that has been present and unchanged since the Act's adoption in 1935. But despite arguments by amicus to the contrary, the Board concluded that in all cases in which our standard remedy would include an order for make-whole relief, the Board will now expressly order that the employer compensate, compensate affected employees for all direct or foreseeable pecuniary harms suffered as a result of the respondent's unfair labor practice. The NLRB supported their ruling by noting that the Supreme Court of the United States has held that it has authority to fashion such a remedy, which is a broad discretionary one, and then it is supported by several other case decisions. And in another employment law published decision, Jesus Gomez was employed by Andana Car Wash Corporation, located in Gardena, California. He filed a wage claim against his employer with the California Labor Commissioner. After a hearing, the Labor Commissioner awarded Gomez nearly $23,000 for overtime earnings, meal, meal period premium pay, rest period premium pay, liquidated damages, interest, and waiting time penalties. The Labor Code then allows a party to a Labor Commissioner proceeding to seek review of an order Decision or award by filing an appeal to the Superior Court, where the appeal shall be heard de novo. But if the employer is the appealing party, the employer must post a bond. Adana filed an appeal de novo with the Los Angeles Superior Court and a notice of posting bond with a copy attached. However, Adana had attached a copy of its labor code section 2055 car wash bond rather than a specific bond required by the labor code for a de novo appeal of a decision of the labor commissioner mr gomez therefore moved to dismiss the appeal because adana failed to post an undertaking which the labor code required In opposition, Adena argued that the Labor Code Section 2055 bond satisfied the Section 98.2 undertaking because the former was intended to benefit car wash employees, and Gomez was a car wash employee. The Superior Court rejected that argument and granted the motion and dismissed the appeal, and the Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal in the published case of Adena Car Wash Corporation versus Gomez. The appeal addresses the relationship between two statutory surety bonds required under different sections of the labor code, a section 98.2 appeal bond and a section 2055 car wash bond. The appeal bond is forfeited to the employee where the employer's appeal fails or is withdrawn and the employer does not timely pay the award. In contrast, the $150,000 car wash bond is a prerequisite to operating a car wash in California. On its face, Section 2055 makes it clear that a car wash bond has nothing to do with litigation or appellate proceedings. It is a condition that must be satisfied before the car wash employer may obtain a license or permit. The court went on to say that Adana's sleight-of-hand attempt to substitute a car wash bond for an appeal bond runs afoul of a rule that applies to bonds in general, since the Code of Civil Procedure expressly distinguishes between a licensing bond and one furnished in connection with litigation. The legislature amended the labor code in 2000 to include the appeal bond requirement to ensure that workers are paid if they prevail at the de novo appeal in cases where employers disappear or declare bankruptcy during the appeal. According to the legislative analysts, when the appeal bond was being considered, there was evidence that unscrupulous employers particularly those in the underground economy, were filing frivolous appeals of labor commissioner decisions with the superior court in an effort to drag out litigation and hide assets so that workers would not be able to collect on judgments, even if ultimately successful on appeal. Thus, the court concluded that a Section 2055 Car Wash Bond is not an appeal bond under Section 98.2. And now our crime report. KCRA-TV is a television station in Sacramento affiliated with NBC and owned by Hearst Television. For months, its investigative producer and a photographer traveled across California and interviewed people in other states as part of a documentary project that revealed a wave of failures at the California Employment Development Department. With nearly 15 hours of interviews from 17 people and dozens of hours of news footage, the documentary tells the story of what is being called the worst fraud in California history. And the documentary seems to have triggered a federal congressional investigation of the EDD that might lead to the EDD repaying millions of dollars to the federal government. The head of the Committee on Oversight and Accountability sent two letters, one to the head of the EDD and another to the head of U.S. Department of Labor. Both cite the KCRA-TV documentary, Easy Money, Fraud, Fortune, and Failures as demonstrating the need for an investigation of fraud against the California employment system. During the pandemic, EDD had a massive number of both legitimate and illegitimate applications for money. In an effort to get money out, of the, out the door, the leadership at EDD and in the administration lifted fraud controls. The letter quotes the head of California Labor and Workforce at the time as saying, there is no sugarcoating the reality. California did not have sufficient security measures in place to prevent this level of fraud. As part of their investigation, the committee is asking for a list of related documents no later than January 27th. Since the Committee on Oversight and Accountability is holding its hearing into the matter, On February 1st. And in regulatory news, claims administrators were sent a reminder by the DWC that the annual report of inventory must be submitted in early 2023 for new claims reported during 2022. By April 1st of each year, the California Code of Regulations requires claims administrators to file this report with the Division of Workers' Compensation, indicating the number of claims reported at each adjusting location for the preceding calendar year. The report must be completed and submitted to the DWC Audit Unit even if no claims were reported in the prior year unless its requirement has been waived by the DWC. But when the annual Port of Inventory requirement is waived, claims administrators must still file an annual report of adjusting locations. This report also must be filed annually on April 1 of each calendar year for the adjusting location operations as of December 31st of the prior year. Claims administrators are required to report any change in the information reported in the annual report of inventory or annual report of adjusting location within 45 days of the effective date of a change. Penalties of up to $500 per location for failure to timely file this report of inventory may be assessed under the regulations. The form for 2022 to be used for these reports can be found on the DWC website. The California Insurance Commissioner has announced the appointments of April Savoy, Patrick Wong, and Peter Gustav as members on the California Insurance Guarantee Association, SEGA, Board of uh, Governors. SEGA comprises of all insurance companies admitted to sell homeowners, workers' compensation, automobile, and other specified property and casualty lines of insurance in California and its Board of Governors oversees the Guarantee Association's general operations and management. April Savoy is Senior Vice President and Deputy General Counsel at Allstate Insurance Company, where she serves as Secretary for the Allstate's Health Benefits and Financial Services subsidiary boards, and is a working group member of the Environmental, Social, and Governance Steering Committee. She leads the Insurance Law and Legal Operations Division for the Allstate Enterprise and has over 25 years of experience in enterprise risk, legal, regulatory compliance, claims coverage, and corporate governance. Savoy has been appointed to the SEGA Board of Governors in the Member Insurance Representative seat. Patrick Wong is Senior Vice President, General Counsel, and Secretary for CSE Insurance Group. He has over 20 years of experience in insurance and is a member of CSE's Executive Leadership Team, leading the corporate department, which includes legal, governance, compliance, quality assurance, and internal audit. Wang has been reappointed to the SEGA Board of Governors as a representative of CSE Insurance Group and a member insurance seat. And, B, uh, and Peter Gustav Macchio is Chief Investment Officer and Treasurer for the State Compensation Insurance Fund, overseeing a multi-billion dollar investment portfolio. He has 40 years of experience in finance including over 20 years of experience in the insurance industry in both publicly traded insurance companies as well as a public state fund. Gusta Machio has been reappointed to the Siega Board of Governors as a representative of the state fund in a member insurer seat. And in medical news, Sedgwick and the Disability Management Employer Coalition, DMEC, announced the release of a new study, Long COVID, Assessing and Managing Workforce Impact. This white paper is the product of months of information gathering and analysis by leading disability, clinical, research, insurance, government, and other workplace experts. It also includes the results of a 2022 DMEC Pulse survey on current employer practices to accommodate and assist employees with long COVID. These two organizations convened a group of nation's employers, researchers, clinicians, and others to develop a pathway for dealing with long COVID. The mission of the long COVID think tank was to share answers to difficult questions, and recommend effective solutions and strategies to help employees with long COVID remain on the job, return to work in an effective and productive capacity, or access leave if they are unable to work. The think tank's work encompassed exploring the current and future problems long-term COVID presents to employers and employees. Developing a consensus definition for long COVID to guide employers' actions, identifying long COVID symptoms and phases to support benefit design strategies, summarizing the most credible research on the prevalence and impact of long COVID, assessing stay at work and return to work challenges, and highlighting emerging best practices and steps for employers and absence management professionals to consider. COVID-19 has claimed the lives of millions of people, disrupted economic activity, and imposed large financial costs on governments, employers, and other organizations. While the COVID-19 pandemic may be over, the endemic phase has just begun. For the millions of employees who have, or will have, long COVID, the difficult to diagnose and often debilitating illness that induces long-term symptoms and impedes work and productivity. The long-term COVID is used to describe the disease when symptoms last beyond five weeks. The Kaiser Family Foundation reported that long COVID has been described as our next national health disaster and the pandemic after the pandemic. While estimates vary on how many people in the U.S. suffer from long COVID, the General Accounting Office, GAO, puts the number at 23 million. The conclusions of experts from Walmart, Johns Hopkins University, the Hartford, and other leading organizations convened by DMEC and Sedgwick are sobering. And there's no question that long COVID cuts deeply into employee productivity. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that one in four adults with long COVID report significant limitations on day-to-day activities. Employers' efforts to accommodate employees with long COVID have revealed significant shortcomings. According to the latest DMEC Pulse Survey, only 10% of respondents have an existing program to assist employees with long COVID and most employers lack formal best practices, stay-at-work and return-to-work programs. The report, Long COVID, Assessing and Managing Workforce Impact, includes lists of accommodations employers should consider as they help those with long COVID, return-to-work and stay-at-work. The white paper recommends flexibility, creativity, and the need to educate managers about long COVID symptoms and accommodations and is free to download on the DMEC website. Surgical volume, the frequency with which surgeons and surgery centers perform complex surgical procedures is a key determinant of healthcare quality. The Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality AHRQ includes, how many times have you done this procedure as one of the 10 questions patients should ask their doctor? Consumer Reports similarly recommends that patients inquire about a surgical volume when choosing a physician. Prior studies concluded that providers with higher surgical volume are expected to have fewer medical errors and defects and better acute outcomes overall. However, existing studies have only been able to leverage relatively small samples of data for specific surgical procedures. So in a new paper on this topic, Clarify Health used a large observational sample of national health insurance claims for patients undergoing hip and knee replacement surgeries in 2021. Hip and knee surgeries are the most common elective orthopedic surgical procedures where provider choice is possible for patients. It found that low provider surgical volume negatively impacts post-acute outcomes across inpatient and outpatient settings, even after it controlled for patient characteristics and other factors. And... It found that treatment by higher volume surgeons is particularly important for more clinically complex patients. For both hip and knee replacements, higher provider surgical volume is associated with better outcomes across multiple dimensions and multiple care settings, even after adjusting for differences in patient characteristics. Major findings include... Lower rates of post-acute inpatient readmission at both 7 and 60 days. Lower rates of revision surgeries. Lower rates of post-surgical stay orthopedic specialist visits, emergency department visits, and inpatient days. Lower episodes level and orthopedic specific standard dollar amounts. When Clarify Health stratified hip and knee replacements by place of service between inpatient, outpatient, and ambulatory surgical center settings, volume outcome relationships largely remained. Its findings imply clinical benefits for patients who undergo hip and knee replacement surgeries with high volume surgeons. Payers and health systems have begun to concentrate volume of surgeries and other procedures at specific sites within their networks, or referring to these locations as centers of excellence. Centers of excellence have higher relative volume, are actively educating care teams about best practices and current medical research, and often obtain special accreditations from national organizations, and consistently generate improved outcomes versus lower-volume sites of care. Kaiser Health News reports that a smartphone may become the next doctor's office. Their story notes that fingertip pressing against a phone's camera uh, lens can measure a heart rate, The microphone kept by the bedside can screen for sleep apnea and even the speaker is being tapped to monitor breathing using sonar technology. This data can be conveyed remotely to a medical professional for the convenience and comfort of the patient or in some cases to support a clinician without the need for costly hardware but some experts say that using smartphones as diagnostic tools is a work in progress. Although doctors and their patients have found some real-world successes in deploying the phone as a medical device, the overall potential remains unfulfilled and uncertain. The apps then use artificial intelligence software to analyze the collected sights and sounds to create an easy connection between patients and physicians. Earning potential and marketability are evidenced by the more than 350,000 digital health products available currently in app stores. According to the Pew Research Center, most Americans own a smartphone, including more than 60% of people 65 and over, an increase from just 13% a decade ago. The COVID-19 pandemic has also pushed Peel to become more comfortable with virtual care. Some of these products have sought FDA clearance to be marketed as a medical device. That way, if patients must pay to use the software, health insurance are more likely to cover at least part of the cost. But how the agency handles AI and machine learning based medical devices is still being adjusted to reflect software's adaptive nature. Ensuring accuracy and clinical validation is critical to securing buy-in from healthcare providers. And many tools still need fine-tuning, according to a professor of medicine at the University of Washington, who is testing contactless measurement of blood pressure, heart rate, and oxygen saturation Cleaned remotely by way of zoom camera footage of a patient's face. Big tech companies like Google have heavily invested in researching this kind of technology, catering to clinicians and in-home caregivers, as well as consumers. Currently in the Google Fit app, users can check their heart rate by placing their finger on the rear-facing camera lens or track their breathing rate using the front-facing camera. So, for example, instead of using a blood pressure cuff, an algorithm can interpret slight visual changes to the body that serve as proxies and biosignals for the patient's blood pressure. Gogol is also investigating the effectiveness of the built-in microphone for detecting heartbeats and murmurs and using the camera to preserve eyesight by screening for diabetic eye disease. The tech giant recently purchased Sound Life Sciences, a Seattle startup with an FDA cleared sonar technology app. It uses smart devices speakers to bounce inaudible pulses off a patient's body to identify movement and monitor breathing. Bina.ai, based in Israel, is another company using the smartphone camera to calculate vital signs. Its software looks at the region around the eyes where the skin is a bit thinner and analyzes the light reflecting off blood vessels back to their lens. The company is wrapping up a U.S. clinical trial and marketing its wellness app directly to insurers and other health uh, companies. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I am Renee false with Floyd, Scaron, Minouki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.